0: Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association of North America's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association of North America or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Clay Nully with TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today I have the privilege of speaking with Commander Lance LeClaire. Dr. LeClaire is an Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Uniform Services for University of Health Sciences and is the Head Team Physician at the U.S. Naval Academy. He was an author on a paper entitled Outcomes of Primary Biceps Subpectoral Tenodesis in an Active Population, a Prospective Evaluation of 101 Patients, published in the December 2019 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Lance, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Clay. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So let's start off with those readers and those listeners that haven't quite read the article. Can you just give us the two or three main conclusions and a brief summary and synopsis of the results of the study?
1: Sure. So this is a a study of slap lesions and uh, primary biceps uh, tendonitis uh, and unstable biceps uh, lesions in a young active population. The senior authors, Matt Preventure and uh, Dan Solomon, collected uh, patients over a six-year period and wanted to see the uh, the overall efficacy of biceps tenodesis in this population in a primary setting. So. Basically, they looked back at their population and found that primary subpectoral biceps tenodesis for slap tears or pathology of the long head biceps tendon was uh, resulted in a significant improvement in shoulder outcomes in a prospective uh, uh, cohort. And so, uh, this is in distinction from the uh, previously published results in in a type two setting uh, a failed type two slap repair that went on to a biceps tenodesis. This is in a primary setting, so the results are. Um, pretty important in their implications in a young active population, demonstrating efficacy of this uh, primary long-headed biceps stenosis is, um, you know, pretty significant.
0: Absolutely. So I think I know the answer to this question already, given who the senior authors are and and you being involved, uh, all very excellent surgeons, but did the results surprise you and your co-authors at all, or did anything that happened in the article change your practice in any way?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I was a resident when this when the data collection was ongoing. So it was really, you know, for a resident, it was really interesting and and impactful to see uh, both Matt and Dan kind of be out in front of the prospective data gathering movement. And I remember, you know, kind of going into patients' uh, rooms and having them fill out paper forms that were 15, 16 pages long and, um, you know, prospectively gathering data on all their patients. And, um, you know, Dan and Matt were certainly kind of ahead of the curve on that. And, um, you know, this is one unique patient population that that they've both looked very closely at. Um, I think some of that was born out of the fact that, you know, we saw a lot of type 2 slap repairs fail in this young active military population. And so, you know, kind of looking for ways to get better results. And, you know, certainly we we saw that revision uh, of a failed slap to a biceps tenodesis uh, gave, you know, rendered good results. But I think... Everybody kind of had a gut feeling that a primary biceps tenodesis would do well, but I think this study kind of proved it to Matt and Dan and those of us that that learned from them and worked with them that this was this was a, a viable option, a good alternative to a primary slap repair was uh, going straight to the biceps tenodesis. And so, um, you know, certainly as a resident and at the early stages of learning, that was really impactful.
0: So the average age of the patient in the study was 42.6 years. Historically, kind of when it comes to slap tears, a lot of people talk about age 35 or 35 to 40 and, and, and Mapreventure and you all have even published some of the, a lot of that data in the past as well as 35 to 40 kind of being potentially that kind of age cutoff of, you know, do you repair versus not repair a type two slap tear, for instance, and then, you know, do you go straight to a biceps versus not. So, so 42.6 is maybe a little bit higher uh, for what we, would term an active patient population a lot of times so do you have a set age cutoff particularly in an active patient population like this or does this study kind of influence that in any way
1: yeah that's a great question i think that's something that we're still trying to find the answer for i do still think there's a role for a slap repair you know i'm at the naval academy as you mentioned and i see 18 to 22 year old active patients and i think there's still a role for doing a slap repair and and um JP Rue and I have looked back at our results in this population, and we've been satisfied with our SLAP repairs in a, in a traumatic injury in these young patients. So I don't know that there's a specific age cutoff where you know doing a SLAP repair is is ill-advised, and and doing a biceps, or conversely, where doing a biceps tenodesis is too young. Certainly, I've done biceps tenodesis in patients in their 20s. Uh, I know Matt and Dan have as well. So I think there's a role for both, uh, a SLAP repair, especially in a young, active uh, patient uh, population with a traumatic injury. Uh, but I don't know where that cutoff is. And I think, as, as alluded to in the article, I think further prospective studies are warranted to kind of try to hone in on, on where that cutoff may be. And if there is a, a line that can be drawn uh, to say it's too late to do a SLAP repair, we need to do a biceps tendidesis. So I think work still needs to be done in that realm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Are there any factors that you say, um, definitely that are definitely going to push you to a slap repair or any factors that definitely push you to a biceps? Um, you know, say for instance, uh, I'll get, you know, it's maybe an 18 year old and he's a thrower. Is that going to push you one direction or another or specific pathology within the slap itself that maybe you'd say, yeah, this is definitely a repair or no, this is definitely go towards more towards a biceps tenodesis. Yeah,
1: I think, um, I think you hit on one patient population that's, uh, that's a real challenge, and that's the overhead thrower, the pitching athlete. You know, certainly across the board, folks have published inferior results in, in pitchers with uh, repairs of the labrum, whether it be a slap repair or, or posterior labrum uh, repair. So I think we we approach that patient population with caution. Certainly, uh, there have been reports of biceps tinnitus and overhead throwing athletes and pitchers and returning to high-level sports, I believe, uh, uh, Dr. Romeo's published good results in that patient population. But I think for us, you know, a young traumatic injury um, it tends to lean more towards, you know, 25 or, or under, uh, may lean more towards a, a slap repair. But in this patient population that we published here, as you mentioned, an average patient age of 42.6 years, that's going to be your, your kind of more senior officer, senior uh, enlisted person that's kind of coming in with you know, maybe not always having a traumatic injury, maybe just the onset of pain over time and sort of a more degenerative slap tear. Um, and that that kind of lends itself more towards uh, going down that biceps tenodesis pathway, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. So just a little bit briefly into Technique differences first for slap repair, if it is a very young active person and then second for the biceps tenodesis. So for a slap repair, are you in the camp of not putting an anchor or a stitch anterior to the biceps or go ahead and put it there if you feel like it, it needs to be there to make an appropriate repair first for the slap repair. I,
1: yeah, that's another great question. I'm in the camp of keeping everything uh, at the biceps anchor and posterior. So I never put anything anterior. Um, you know, I, I, One thing I've seen is, you know, and I've seen it in our 360 degree labrum uh, repair population, I feel like if we over constrain the biceps and we kind of cinch everything down all the way around and over tighten that biceps anchor, that's where I've seen some problems. That's purely anecdotal. But I think, you know, I I tend to keep everything at the biceps anchor or posterior. So, uh, you know, certainly work needs to be done in that realm as well.
0: Yeah, I agree, and that tends to be my preference as well. So now shifting back to the biceps tenodesis in this study. So all all patients uh, had a subpectoral biceps tenodesis, and the fixation was with a bioabsorbable tenodesis screw, either a size 7 or a size 8 tenodesis screw. Is that still your fixation method of choice, generally speaking, or is there a specific indication where you go to a tenodesis screw or don't go to a tenodesis screw? What are your, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I, I've actually gone to a uh, biceps tenodesis button, uh, so I do unicortical button. Um, I've found that a little more more reliable than uh, trying to put in a screw, uh, which you know neither are technically too challenging. But I think if you leave the screw a little bit proud, that can irritate uh, the biceps and cause some pain for the patient. Uh, conversely, if you are a little overzealous and you countersink the screw too much, it can fall into the canal of the humerus and you you lose a little bit of fixation. I I like the button. Uh, you leave it unicortical and I haven't had any issues with, uh, you know, lengthening of the biceps or loss of fixation. So, and, and I also think about the, the, the stress riser of, of a seven or eight millimeter hole in the humeral shaft. You know, in this young active population, that's going to put a lot of torque on this arm, either weightlifting or arm wrestling or whatever it may be. You know, I do worry a little bit about uh, about fracture through the through the drill hole for the, for the screw. So I feel like if I can minimize the size uh, of, of the hole in the humeral shaft, uh, you know, by using a biceps tenodesis button, that's a little more optimal, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. We've all seen the dreaded, uh, humeral, humeral fracture x-ray after an eight millimeter hole that's maybe just slightly eccentrically drilled or just slightly off center. And then, you know, creates that, that, um, that risk and then that subsequent fracture, like you mentioned. So for this study, was that, uh, obviously you mentioned this was done a number of years ago and then followed for a length of time prospectively. Was that just the technique of choice at the time Are your other co uh, like Dr. Preventure and Dr. Solomon, are they still using interference screw primarily, or do you think most people have shifted more towards the unicortical button or even all suture anchor fixation or something with a smaller hole, generally speaking?
1: Yeah. I think that was the preferred technique at the time. Um, I, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure how, I think there's a little bit more diversity in how folks are doing it uh, amongst the authors. And I think some do, some do a screw fixation still, some use a button and as you mentioned, some use anchors. Um, And I'm I'm not aware of anything that shows any, you know, superiority of one technique over the other. And, you know, it should be noted that, that uh, in this cohort, there weren't any iatrogenic, uh, you know, induced uh, fractures or anything like that. So, Um, this does demonstrate that uh, the, the screw fixation is a very viable and successful technique.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and certainly tends to show pretty good pullout strength in some of the biomechanical studies and everything for sure as well. So one final question: so uh, the the main results, eighty two percent of patients returned to full activity at a mean of four point one months. So that's pretty good results, and obviously in a very active military population. For the eighteen percent that didn't, it wasn't really mentioned much in the article. But it, it, were there any specific reasons you think that occurred, or is it just something that you know maybe they were maybe those were some of the little bit older patients or or um, just had some uh, difficult pathology. Was there any specific reason that you think, or was it anything technique related, um, for those eighteen percent that didn't return to their full activity level?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I think some of it may have been, you know, some of some of the failures uh, that required revision in an active population. You have a set amount of time um, where you you can be on limited duty before you're, you know, you're you're medically disqualified or, or asked to leave the military because of your your medical condition, so, you know, some of it just may have been a time factor, but I think the important thing to to consider is, um, you know, looking at concomitant pathology, and I think Dan and Matt, when they designed this study, did a great job of really, really trying to be diligent on focusing in on just biceps and SLAP pathology. You know, the exclusion criteria was pretty strict. Um, You know, the the diagnostic arthroscopy looked at, you know, some of the other lesions that we know can go along with this you know, superior border of the, of the subscapularis, you know, uh, partial cuff tears. You know, if there's a significant partial cuff tear, it was excluded. But, you know, some of the other things that we know more about now that we maybe didn't look for as closely back then, um, you know, some of the subtle multi-directional instabilities and things like that may have contributed. But, you know, I think, uh, I think that's the challenge here is that Matt and Dan did a great job of designing the study and and really tried to be very diligent about, number one, diagnosing long head-of-biceps tendon pathology with the, the lidocaine uh, challenge injections, and then be re, being very focused on, on what they included in the patient population. So I think it's tough to say why those patients failed, but I think it's probably a, a myriad of factors, um, and there's no one smoking gun on why, why those particular uh, 18% or so of patients did fail. So certainly more work needs to be done in that realm as well.
0: Absolutely. That's terrific information. Dr. LeClaire's article, Outcomes of Primary Biceps Subpectoral Tenodesis in an Active Population, a Prospective Evaluation of 101 Patients, can be found in the December 2019 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Lance, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Claire. It's been a pleasure. That concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for listening. Please join us next
1: time.